So bibliology is just a study of the Bible itself. And um, we want to pick up where I, I left off about a month ago. And if you weren't here uh, at that time, the uh, message from a month ago is finally posted online. So you can catch up and, and pick that up. So where I want to pick up on is at paragraph four in our doctrinal statement. So I just want to point out in our doctrinal statement is uh, written where each paragraph begins, we teach, um, that, and that's done intentionally, and it's probably different maybe from what you've seen in other churches. And the reason we do that is because, number one, our doctrinal statement is quite detailed, and you may not have had time to study all these uh, finer points of, of doctrine. So we don't start it out with, you know, we believe, we believe. Now, our goal is that you also would, would believe these things, but it's not a requirement for, for membership. But it helps you to know that when I approach a, a portion of text, that's how I'm going to uh, approach it. Uh, not because I'm trying to fit Scripture into our doctrinal statement, but because that's what we believe Scripture teaches. So uh, you know, our doctrinal statement is, is uh, not an inerrant document. It sits under the authority of the Word of God, so ultimately the Word of God is authoritative, and we only ask you to believe something if you're convinced that Scripture teaches it. So that's, that's ultimately where we're, where we're going with that. So the reason we teach it is because we believe the Bible teaches it. So let me just read that paragraph, and then we'll look at the Scripture references. So paragraph four, we teach that God spoke His written Word by a process of dual authorship, the Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. So what we're talking about is a dual authorship. Ultimately, Scripture is a product of God, as we'll, as we'll see. But God doesn't, off, doesn't override man, the characteristics and style of man, except in those areas where he dictates. And there are a few sections of Scripture where God dictates the message, and then it's, then it's pure God communicating. But most of the time, most of Scripture is what we call dual authorship. Let's look at some passages that support this. So uh, some of these we, we looked at on Sunday, but we'll look at them this evening nonetheless. Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one, and beginning at um, well, I'm going to begin reading at verse sixteen and read through verse twenty-one. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the, by the will of man, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So look at that image in verse, verse 21. But men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So the idea there, the word there, has the idea, or it's used of, like wind fill, uh, filling the sails of a sailing vessel and moving that vessel along in the direction of the wind. So that, that's the idea there. So the Holy Spirit, without, um, without uh, taking over the personalities of the men, moved each of them to write exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write, right? Such that even down to the the smallest letter, uh, the smallest word, all of that is inspired. Right? So that, that's what the scripture is saying. Nothing originates from man, not the interpretation, not its origination, nothing. Okay? So it's, it's from God himself. 
So that's that shows us that that God is the ultimate author of this. Look look at 2 Peter 3. So just chapter 3. And I want you to see verses, I'll read verses 1 and 2, where we see the authorship of man as well. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking and and he continues on. But but look at look at what he says there. He says, I am stirring up. Verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So the Holy Spirit is working in the Apostle Peter as he writes this. But Peter can genuinely say, I am doing it. I am writing. I am, I am writing to stir up uh, what I've taught you before, to, to cause you to remember. Um. So this is the the idea that even in the same letter, we see the Holy Spirit moving. He's the ultimate author, but he uses men, holy men of God, to write what he wants them to write. Now, not everything uh, the apostles wrote, uh, Peter wrote, was inspired. So we're not talking about Peter himself being inspired. We're talking about the Holy Spirit moved Peter to write what he, what he had him write, which is his two letters, First and Second Peter. So um, Peter probably wrote other things, other letters that were not inspired, and those are not preserved, those are not Scripture. So the inspiration is in the Scriptures, not in the person who, who wrote them. Uh, there are portions of Scripture that are dictated, as I mentioned, and I just want to point out one of these. You don't have to turn there. You can listen. You can turn there if you want to. Jeremiah 30 Verses 1 to 5, uh, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like to. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 5. So this would be an example of uh, Old Testament, of God quoting something in the Old Testament. Give you a minute to get there. Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 5. And the word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus says Yahweh. That's a key phrase. When you see that, you know what's coming after that? is a direct quotation. The God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will return the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Yahweh says, I will also cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Yahweh, concerning Judah. For thus says Yahweh, we have heard a sound of trembling, of dread, and there is no peace. And so this is just one of the many portions of the Old Testament where uh, God speaks to a prophet and tells him to, to tell the people of Israel blank, and he'll give them the, the quote, you communicate this. But it's not just in the Old Testament that we see this. We also see it in the New Testament, in Revelation 2 passage which I referred to kind of at the end of my message on Sunday, Revelation 2, verses 1 to 2. There, this is Jesus speaking. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This is what the one who holds seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil and are put to the test. And put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So that's he goes on to commend them for, for their stand, at the same time rebuke them for having le- left their first love. So, But that's a, it's a quotation from our Lord as he diagnoses problems within a church. Um, and he does that for all seven churches in, in Revelation, that are mentioned in Revelation. Uh, let me give you an example of, of God using men to preach and write scriptures, which are then received as the word of God. So this is an example where people are hearing the apostles pre- preach, but they're receiving it not as the word of man, but what it is, the word of God. So 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And Paul, Paul tells the Thessalonian church, which is really a, a model church in many ways. There's not a lot of rebukes. There's a lot of commendations and instruction and teaching to them. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received 
the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. So there Paul is acknowledging there's there's the word of man that was preached in this case because scripture was has had not been completed the the Thessalonians were hearing Paul preach right so the word of god was going out from Paul as he preached it and the Thessalonians received it not just as the sermon of a man but for what it really was the word of god so that's the way we receive scripture now we we see that Yes, men wrote this, sinful men wrote it, men with faults wrote it, but because the Holy Spirit moved them, they wrote exactly what he wanted them to write so that, that when we, these letters that we hold are accumulated together in, in the Bible, we can look at them and read them and, and really just see past the human author and say, these are, these are from God, but, but they're, both, they're both together. So the, the question often comes out, and I kind of already answered the question, but, but let me just ask the question. How can we trust the scriptures if they're written by sinful men, fallible men, men who make mistakes? Have you ever written a long letter? Isn't it easy to, especially if you're copying one, to leave out a word? <laughs> I mean, you ever, re- I know most people don't write letters by hand anymore, or papers by hand, but if you've ever done that and you made a mistake and you're trying to write the letter again, a little neater, isn't it easy to, to miss a word? So, so how do we know the apostles didn't miss a word? Or where, Where's our confidence in that? How would you answer that? Because that's, a, that's, that's what an unbeliever is going to ask you. How do we know the scriptures are reliable? They're written by sinful men. And we would say, yes, they are. Keith? will pass away, which is the smallest punctuation. Um, and you can trace through the New Testament. Um, the New Testament authors knew they were writing Scripture. They call each other's words the Scripture. Jesus refers to the Scripture of the Old Testament in the same sense. So you can you can put together a pretty convincing um, argument from the Word itself that these men knew they were writing God's Word. God says that perfect record of it is kept in heaven and that not even a single jot or tittle. So the punctuation matters. That is where the the truth is actually in the grammar. That's how God has communicated with words. And so I would, I would probably start there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great, a great point. So absolutely. Betsy. Plus the number of authors. You have so many people corroborating your story. Yeah. And yeah, there, you know, a word may be a little, may be spoken a little bit differently educated than, than somebody else, so it may sound a little bit differently if you're just saying that. Yeah, so that, the number of authors is helpful. Yeah, that's a, that's a good reply as well. I mean, simply the thousands of years and the number of authors, <laughs> if it were not orchestrated by God, the, these authors would contradict each other, and, and there is no contradiction. So there's one more angle I'm looking for. All those are good answers, they're correct answers. Ultimately, what I had also said in addition to the scripture is that God has also the power over man to accept and challenge his word. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so God has ultimate providence and control, and and certainly that's true. Right? Let's reference it in the New Testament. Okay, yeah, we can Old verify Testament. Old Testament, New Testament references. Oh, I went into the Old Testament was written in Aramaic, the Babylonian language. And yeah, and all that all that's it, true. Wrote it, and I said, "Well, that's all true." So, however, you're going from one language to another. Um, of course, the Hebrew language is obviously more more superior to ours, and one word may have five different meanings, but our language may have our word may only have one or two meanings to that five different meanings. Yeah, um, it's still you still got the gospel. You still got the, the message right. of being saved. The, the message. Yeah. Also, you can also, like he said, you can 
Yeah, there's there's external there are external evidences for sure. So any other was there a hand up for somebody else? And to me, what I would read it, it would like how it would apply it to what was going on in my life, how some of the experiences that happened way back here, and mm -hmm. like I was experiencing something in my own life. Okay, so the truths validated by mm -hmm. by the truths of your own life. The, the, all those are are evidences. <clears throat> I didn't hear a false evidence out there that I need to correct, but those are all those are all good. I, I want to point you to one, really the ultimate. We kind of already talked about it, about God being the ultimate author. But listen to what Jesus promises his disciples in John 14, 26. He says, but the advocate, so the advocate is another label for the Holy Spirit, another title for the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper. That the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So we're talking about something supernatural. We're talking about what we'd call a miracle. So the disciples didn't understand everything that Jesus said in his three years of ministry. You, I think you understand that, right? That, you know, time, he had to repeat things, lessons. They didn't, they didn't get it. They, they understood a lot, but there was a lot they didn't understand. So the Holy Spirit would come, reside within them, and help them to understand the things that Jesus said. And to understand it means you have to remember it. So what they wrote is, is, is accurate, right? Not just because they had good memory as human beings, but because the Holy Spirit enabled them to remember it. Because he superintended that. Again, without overriding their personalities. Because each one of the authors of Scripture has certain, uh, certain backgrounds, certain cultural characteristics, uh, certain language. So we can tell that, uh, whether it's the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. So Greek scholars can kind of detect which, which type of Greek. Is this uh, kind of a, a low layman's Greek? Or is this more of, a, of an educated Greek, a high uh, like Paul would write with. So those kind of different characteristics come through with different books. Um, but ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verses 12 and 15, again, Jesus promises help from the Holy Spirit. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So it's like, well, there's not much time left, Jesus. When are you going to teach them? If you have many more things. He says, but when he, the, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes care of mine and will disclose it to you. So it's a, it's a promise from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus, that he's going to send this helper, the Holy Spirit, to, to guide them to understand and to write what he wants them to write. So ultimately, it's, it's a supernatural thing. I mean, logically, it would make sense if you have fallible men writing something, they would write a fallible product. So if you just looked at logically. So that, um, this is a spiritual thing, which is why we were talking about, like, about some of the liberals and fundamentalists. That's why a liberal Christian, if there is such a thing, but there, there is in the world, but it doesn't really make sense. But that's why they deny the, the inerrancy of Scripture, because they're looking at it purely from a logical standpoint. Logically, on human level, they're right, right? No human being writes things, something that's perfect. But they negate the miracles, right, such as the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, you know, and, and among them is the miracle that the Holy Spirit worked through men to actually write the Scriptures. So they, they would deny that. Um, one, other, one other passage uh, I want to turn to is in 2 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15. And through 16. Let me just read that. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable 
distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So that's an interesting passage because you have the Apostle Peter affirming that what the Apostle Paul wrote was scripture and that those that are, how does he describe, and those who um, the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. So you know, Peter is saying that what Paul wrote is on par with the rest of the scriptures. So that's that's a pretty interesting passage to, to think about. And and Paul wrote that according to the wisdom given to him. So not his own wisdom, but the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gave to him. Um, and, and just to affirm these truths, Matthew 5.18, what Keith was saying, for, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And um, you could add to that 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's coming from him. Uh, Psalm uh, 19, verses 7 to 9, we'll take time to take a look at that, but just talks about the perfections of the word of God and its results. So just think about how these things should impact our lives. We could study these and just move on and say, yeah, these are nice factoids. But but think about this. If, if these things are true, that the Bible is inerrant and and the word i couldn't think of sunday was infallible so the bible is also infallible but some people use the word infallible as a notch below inerrant right so um infallible is a decent word it means without fault but it just it's used by some theologians as a step lower than inerrancy so but if the Bible is infallible without fault and inerrant, is given by God, it's accurate in all its parts, then it has unquestionable authority over our lives. Right? Unquestionable authority. It has authority to speak into our lives, to direct us and how we should live. It has authority to accurately direct us to Christ and communicate the gospel and point us to Christ. Um, yeah, so we owe allegiance uh, ultimately to Christ, but he's revealed to us in the word of God. So we don't worship the word of God. Uh, we have no altars to the word of God. Uh, we just worship the living word of God. And he is revealed to us in the pages of scripture. So our goal is to trust the scriptures, even when we don't understand like like why or or how. I mean, obviously you have to understand the scriptures to obey them, but uh, much of Scripture, especially the parts I think that are hard to obey, aren't hard to understand. So, so we just need to put ourselves under the authority of God's Word and allow um, allow it to soak in and direct our lives, right? so that we are honoring the Lord. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, "If you love me, you allow the, the, my words to be in you. My words will abide in you." So he um, even says, if you love me, you will obey me. So ultimately, we do this not for the love of the Bible, but for the love of Christ. Right? Um, so some, those are the practical implications. We are to trust the scriptures. And along with all this, we could talk about the inerrancy, the infallibility of the word of God. We would say those only applied to the original writings. So... The Bible we have in, in our hands, I would say it's trustworthy, but I would not say it's inerrant because of the transmission. But I would say that God has supernaturally preserved right, his word through history right, to where the copy of the word of God you have in your hands is accurate, accurately represents the, uh, the original there are a few places where we have questions about, well, was it written this way or this word or, or that word? But there's absolutely no fundamental teaching of Christianity that's in question. Like none of those, none of those portions of Scripture that are questionable, or I said those portions of Scripture that are questionable don't impact any key doctrines, any fundamental doctrines, none at all. And as you, you all have pointed out, we have lots of evidence from history, these various copies. We have more copies of the scriptures than of any other ancient manuscript. And while some people doubt the scriptures, they don't doubt um, Homer and some of these other ancient manuscripts that, that we have copies of. And we don't have very many of those compared to the copies of scripture. So 
just you know the the purpose here is just to help you understand just the the wonder the, the treasure that God has given us in his word and I just want to pause there and just uh, lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for what God has given us our Lord God we thank you so much that you have not left us as orphans you've not left us like looking in the darkness on how to trying to discover who you are and how to live. Lord, you have revealed that to us in your word. You have given us your perfect word. And Lord God, thank you for giving it to us, for directing men to wrote what they wrote and preserving your word all these thousands of years. Lord, so, and, and just working so that we have an accurate copy of the word of God in our own language that we can read and understand. Lord God, help us to be obedient to the word of God, so that we, when we read the Word of God, we will seek to obey it. And we will fail many times, Lord God, you know that. But just help us to progressively keep growing in our obedience for the glory of Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So let's, let's go move on to paragraph 5. So we teach that whereas there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true interpretation. The meaning of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. Let's kind of unpack that just a little bit. So while there can be many applications of Scripture, there's only one true interpretation of Scripture. Right? We would call, I would call it authorial intent. And when I talk about the authorial intent, that's the author's intent. Remember what we said about the authors? Right? So there's dual authorship, but ultimately it all stems from God. It's, all Scripture is God-breathed. So, so the, uh, Peter can have the intention to remind but, that, but the Holy Spirit has put in Peter's heart a desire to remind or to stir up others in a way of reminder. Do you have a, do you have a question, Lisa? So it's the, there's not a dual intention because God is supernaturally superintending using Peter's personality and the temptation. There's not Peter's intention. So inspiration isn't all Peter's intention and all God's intention. It's not right to think of it that way. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's two. Yeah, I don't think there's two competing wills. Yeah. So, because the Holy Spirit caused the men to write what He wrote, they might have Peter might have had the desire to. Well, he did. He had the desire to stir up by way of reminder the things that he had said before. But ultimately, that's coming from the Holy Spirit, and the things that he wrote were from the Holy Spirit. So, um, ultimately, we can we can rest on that. So it, it, there's a history of biblical interpretation. There's all sorts of wacky ideas out there. And we're not going to go into all those. If you have questions about them, you can feel free to ask afterwards. But just, just know that at the end of the day, there's one correct interpretation of Scripture. And we have to use the principles of hermeneutics in order to, to, to get at that. And that requires diligence and, and hard work. So, you know, it, it's... Um, we can we we might um, just back up and say sometimes good and faithful men disagree on a particular passage, the interpretation of the passage, but scripture is so clear and and is so sure that we have to say that at the end of the day, one of those men is wrong, or they're both wrong. <laughs> That's a possibility too sometimes right? but that's how sure. So there's, all I'll say is there's, there's gold, um, spiritual gold in the scriptures, and, and we have to use hermeneutics, language tools to get at, get at the meaning. So when I became a Christian uh, early on, I was like, well, well, who came up with these rules of hermeneutics? Right? So that, I was, that was a little bit uh, puzzling for me. But, but they flow from language themselves. We rely on these, on um, these language tools every day. Right? Give you an example. The refrigerator is cool. Oh, that outfit's so cool. Same word. Different meaning. 
what do you use to determine the difference? Context, right? So that's what I'm referring to. It, these are not rules that, that are like someone, some scholar sat down and wrote them all out. They, we do have lists of some of these because scholars have, have studied language, how language functions and written them down, right? So that we're, not, we're not artificially imposing principles on scripture. These principles flow from scripture. Keith, did you have a comment or question? I just missing a component, which is the spiritual, and that there's a, there's an overemphasis on grammar and history and structure and context, which I I don't I don't agree. There is a spiritual component. Could you just uh, just note what that spiritual component is in, and how that works in this particular context? Right. So there there's again a long history of people searching for a spiritual meaning that somehow mystically is aligned with the grammatical, historical, literal, but isn't exactly the same thing. So I, I guess the clearest way to answer that is to say that the Holy Spirit moved men to write the Word of God, and the meaning of the Scriptures is the Scriptures. That's a quote from MacArthur. The meaning of the Scriptures is the Scriptures, meaning you get at it. You're looking at what the word means in its context. You're looking at the grammar, past, present, future tense. Uh, you're looking at all of those things to get at what is the Holy Spirit communicating and what is the application. So sometimes we're given why it's written, like the, the Gospel of John at the end of it gives us a purpose statement as to why that gospel was written. Other times we have to look at it. And we have to come to a conclusion. Like why did why did Mark write his gospel? Well, he didn't give us a purpose statement, but uh, we can we can come to a reasonable conclusion as to why he wrote that. Um, so the the spiritual meaning is, is something I would I kind of caution just to stay away from because people are looking sometimes for something that's a bit on the mystical side uh, on that. God gave you a word that, that you could understand, and you don't have to be, um, in fact, you, you shouldn't be a mystic in order to understand it. Right? So uh, it's, it's clear. And sometimes we can study it. You know, a, a language student can study all these things and not be moved by it. You know, there are plenty of unsaved Hebrew students, plenty of unsaved Greek students, and they study Bible as an unsaved person just because they think it's interesting. So that's the danger. You know, it's like the church at Ephesus, where you you got all this, you know all this, but it hasn't impacted your soul. Right? So that's that's really what our goal in Scripture is not just to understand it, but to understand it, allow it to impact our lives, that we would live lives of worship and praise and glory to our Lord and Savior. So that answer, I think it was fair enough, clear, clear enough. You're saying this, the, mean, the spiritual meaning. God has made the, the spiritual meaning is communicated to the believers. It's not like um, a spiritual meaning cannot be cannot be communicated by words. They Correct. can be, and they are. And the words we have are the scripture. Correct. Correct. I guess an example of sometimes the people draw on a spiritual meaning by using more of a figurative interpretation. So the Song of Solomon is a puzzle for many of us. But in the early, year, early years of the church, uh, most pastors would have interpreted the Song of Solomon as um, a, a really a story about Christ and the church. But it requires a figurative, almost a spirit, what you're pointing at, almost like a spiritual interpretation of that text. That, and that was the predominant interpretation of that before the Reformation. But since the Reformation, we... I said we recovered uh, this, you know, the scriptural, literal hermeneutic. We realize, no, the Song of Solomon is actually God upholding um, really the beauty of, of marital love. And, you, you know, if you read that, Messiah is not in it. Christ isn't in it. You have to import that into the text in order to get that out. 
So that, that, that's probably an example of what you're what you're talking about. So there was a there was a big push in in um, the early church. I say the early church. I don't mean New Testament, but I mean like um, I guess the three hundreds, four hundreds, something like that, where there's a push to not only understand the text, but then understand like how to how to apply it. And so they worked really hard at coming up with these very creative interpretations on how to apply it. They weren't accurate, but they were trying to figure out what do we do with this? All this, all these stories about the old Testament, they weren't sure what, what to do with some of these things. So, so that you think about Paul's writings, you know, you know I, I think this is basically what you're saying. Their only purpose of them is to convey God's message in their own words. Paul was not a woman hater. This is not his, you know, yes, this is not why he's writing these sermons. He's not Correct. a woman hater. That's what you hear from Correct. so many people. They're trying to put his personality and his thoughts into what he wrote. Correct. And so, correct. Yeah, he's not. It's just conveying God's message. Yeah, his with his personality. That is correct. And and I would just say on that point, because it's repeated so frequently these days, like anybody that says that Paul is a woman hater doesn't really know what they're talking about, <laughs> because. Even liberal scholars who have written to say that because if you look through Paul's writings, he praises women a lot and he gives them thanks for their ministry and he puts them in partnership positions in his ministry. So no one who's a woman hater is going to do that. So even many liberal scholars who aren't looking to push an agenda with the male-female role issue will admit that, yeah, Paul is no male chauvinist. He is not a woman hater at all. So, you know, that's, I just, I just read that this week and looking at some other things. So it's a good, good reminder. That's correct. Um, let's see here. We're going to cover some of these. I won't cover all of these um, scriptures that, that are mentioned. But let's look at First Corinthians 2. And again, I looked at this on Sunday, but I think it's worth looking at again. 1 Corinthians 2. And it's looking at verses 7 through 15. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they have understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. Of which depths we speak, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I just want to point out there that, that the Holy Spirit's role is not only in giving the Scriptures, that's the authors giving it, that's the origination of Scripture, but the Spirit is the one who helps us rightly understand it. So, an unbeliever can open the Bible and to and can understand the grammar. Uh, they can look at the language and understand the, all those kind of things, but they're not going to understand in an applicational standpoint the significance of what it all means unless the Holy Spirit is within them helping them to understand it. So his role is not only in giving Scripture, but in, in receiving Scripture. So as you're reading Scripture right, and you're having difficulty understanding something, Ask the Holy Spirit to help you rightly understand it. Again, you're not looking for some mystical aha, some thought that comes to your mind, um, but you're looking at trying to understand the Scripture 
and his help. And sometimes that does come into an aha moment, but not because it's a mystic, something mystical comes into your head, but because the Holy Spirit helps you process and understand what, what is being said in, in the scriptures. Um, the, uh, in First John 2.20, um, there the Apostle John tells the, the writers, uh, sorry, the recipients of his letter, says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. So believers have the Holy Spirit residing within them and he is that anointing. And he is going to help you understand the scriptures. Now, that's not a guarantee that you'll understand it correctly. So you've got to do hard work with that. Um, you've got to be one of those workmen who studies the word of God diligently to make sure that you're rightly dividing the word of God so that you're not ashamed. You have nothing to be ashamed about. But but so the Holy Spirit's work there in our, in our lives, helping us to understand the word of God, that's, that's his work of illumination. So if you want to put a kind of a definition to it, it's his work of illuminate. He illuminates or brings light, uh, brings understanding to our to our minds of what the text means. And and when we look at the scriptures using the literal grammatical historical method, we're not saying when we talk about literal, some people overreact to that and, and they take everything literally. Um, that's not correct. So we recognize there's different genres. So a genre is like, Poetry or prophecy, history, um, or like dictation or the law. So those are different different genres, right? But there's also within those you even got even within narrative. Sometimes, often Jesus uses figurative speech when he talks about himself, where he says, "I am a door." Right? So obviously, we we recognize that Jesus is not saying he's a physical door, right? So. You know, the, you just follow the, the process of hermeneutics. If the, the plain sense or the literal sense doesn't make sense, then you seek no other sense. So in, in that, you know, when Jesus says, I am the door, uh, the literal sense doesn't make sense. So you go to the, go to the figurative, the metaphorical. So that, that's what we're talking about there. So we recognize that there's different genres and different, different, um, different, um, genres that you need to interpret non-literally so and you just have to pay attention to the context the context will help you know that um i want to caution too against uh, what what is today called the hermeneutic of humility it's not a hermeneutic at all but it's called that the hermeneutic of humility the hermeneutic of humility says that i'm not going to be so prideful to say that i'm correct and I'm not going to be so prideful to say that you're wrong. And where that leaves us is in no man's land. And you hear this kind of in Bible studies where, where people ask the question. Sometimes they, they don't know what they're doing, but other times they do. Where they do this. They say, what does this scripture mean to you? And you just go around and you share, you know, what does it mean to you? And there's like, one scripture, but four different, at least four different meanings. I'm not talking about applications. Multiple applications is fine. So, um, so just just be aware of that. That that's that's something that still is come, going around in our Christian community. You, know, you can't tell me I'm wrong. You know, so we we can not, and we shouldn't do ever ever shouldn't ever do so in any kind of prideful way. But we can go to the Word of God and say that it does have one meaning, even if we can't figure out what that one meaning is yet. Right? It's there. Keith. And it's knowable. What's that? It's knowable. The Bible tells us it's knowable. It's First knowable. John five thirteen. That's why I reply back and say that you may know you have eternal life. Yeah. You yeah. may know it. Yeah. I I really like MacArthur's little book, uh, Found God's Will. And um, it's a really small one. It's very principled. Very, you know, just if helping you walk through principles of making decisions regarding God's will. And just piggybacking on that, you know, he he says that that God's will, God hasn't hidden His will in a mystery. He hasn't He hasn't set up, determined a will for your life and then hidden it, and you have to go find it. So think if that's true of God's will, and it is, it's true of His word. He's given us his words so that we can understand it. Are there some things hard to understand? Yes, there are. There sure are. And we need to be very careful that we study. It requires diligence. 
You might say, well, why did God write some things hard to understand? I think because he just wants us to depend upon him. And if it were all very easy to understand, then you could just, you wouldn't really have as much reason to rely upon the Lord to understand his word. So that's that's my two cents on that. There's probably other reasons for that. Um, so as far as the implications from that, I just want to encourage you to be committed to intaking the word of God. We have such rich resources from the internet to your phones to so many different hard copies, so many different translations, so many good translations. Right? So uh, you know we're using the, I'm using the LSB tonight, but the NASB 95 is good, the ESV is good, the New King James Version. All of those, um, uh, you know, have their strengths and weaknesses, uh, but we have such rich heritage. That, that it's going to be, we're going to be ashamed before our Lord if we're not using those resources that he's given us. You know, it's like the Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you not read? In other words, implying you actually have read and you should have read and you should have known this. So the Lord is compassionate and gracious, and, but that's no excuse um, just to downplay the value of the word of God in our lives. So if I can just call you to, to, you know, per, your personal devotions, you know, spend time in the Word of God on a regular basis, praying while you're studying, asking for the Lord's help, feed on the Word of God. You know, the Word of God is pictured as as milk in First Peter two two, as bread in Deuteronomy eight three and Matthew four four, is pictured as meat in First Corinthians three two, and it's pictured as honey in Psalm nineteen ten. All those are different pictures of like the way that the Word of God nourishes us spiritually. So it's it's not surprising that Christianity in America is so anemic when we think, when we realize how scripturally illiterate much of the Christian world is in America today. It, it is, even though we have more resources than we've ever had, uh, biblical literacy is is very low. And that, that, like I was talking about Sunday, that impacts people's ability to, to exercise discernment and knowing what's true and false. So commit yourself to, to read the Word of God, listen to solid preaching and, and working to apply the Bible to your life. And also, along with that, you should be absolutely steadfast committed to expository preaching. That, that, that must, you must demand that from your shepherds, I'm committed to that, um, but the Lord tarries long enough, I won't be here. So you must demand expository preaching, because if we have an inerrant word, and we do, then it demands the only response, the only, the only logical flow from that preaching-wise is expository preaching, which means preaching that flows out of the text, right? You don't need a creative pastor to, to kind of manipulate a message and make you feel good and send you out the door. You need to be fed from the Word of God, and that requires expository preaching. Um, I'll just quote MacArthur Mayhew here. Sound doctrine demands exacting, it demands both exacting exposition and powerful preaching. And they, they uh, mention three propositions. First one, God gave his true word to be communicated entirely as he gave it. That is, the whole counsel of God is to be preached. Correspondingly, every portion of the word of God needs to be considered in the light of its whole. Secondly, God gave his true word to be communicated exactly as he gave it. It is to be dispensed precisely as it was delivered without altering the message. And thirdly, the only exegetical process that yields expository proclamation will accomplish these goals. So preachers must realize that the message they're preaching is not theirs, right? So my preaching is not inspired like Paul's. But the goal is, in my preaching, expository preaching, is that you hear the voice of God because the because it's taught that accurately, right? That's my goal. That's what I ask you to pray for from this pulpit, whether it's me or somebody else preaching, that, that the Word of God would be honored, that Christ would be honored through the preaching of His Word. So it requires work and diligence. It's not easy. 
to get at the original meaning and to to understand it and then to figure out how to what it means to us today and, and in other words how it applies to us today uh, but that's what has to be done to honor god's word if it's inerrant and it is uh, any any questions quick questions yes betsy the apocrypha do you think those writings were just totally untrue or just didn't make the cut uh, the Apocrypha, I don't think the Apocrypha is inspired. So the Apocrypha has some helpful scholarly details that gives us some historical information about the time period between the last of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, and then um, the first of the New Testament prophets, which would be John the Baptist. So it gives us the, some intertestamental history. So I, I think there's value in reading them from a historical standpoint to try to understand Israel's history, but they're not inspired. And that would be the short answer. Yeah, Keith? Pastor Mark, I have a question on, on the apocryphal statement. You, you talked about we teach versus we believe. So my question is, some of these we teach are actually inextricably linked back to gospel matters. And so there is a sense in which if somebody were and they didn't hold to and believe some of these, most of them actually would be, a, they would be tantamount to denying the gospel. Many of them are. So how, how, how do you reconcile that in, in, in the we teach versus we believe thing? Mm-hmm. Are there aspects like if, if you came out and said, I'm, I'm joining, but I deny all four, five of the Holy Scripture statements, right? That would be, that would be a deal breaker, obviously. Right. But how, how do we indicate like, uh, which which items kind of even though we say we teach they really do transcend a we teach statement. Many of them do. Yeah. You're you're correct. Okay, so, so I'm just asking for clarity. On yeah. That. So on this, uh, like on a portion of the scripture, we talk about Christ to be really clear. So when we, you know, we teach that in His virgin birth, for example, if you deny the virgin birth, uh, you are not a, a Christian. Now you can be a Christian without understanding the virgin birth don't, don't get me wrong you don't have to understand the virgin birth to be a christian but if you did if you're taught that from the scriptures and you deny it then you're creating a god of your own imagination which means you don't have faith in the true true christ which means you're not really saved so that 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 would be a, a case where you're right there are times where even though we wrote we teach um, in the membership process, we would we would ferret that out. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Well, let me close in prayer, and if you have any other questions, feel free to come up and ask. Our Lord and our God, we again just thank you for giving us your Word, for preserving your Word, and giving us your Holy Spirit to help us know you and to know the Scriptures. Lord God, just make us to be faithful students of the Word of God and to apply these things to our life, to to utilize the rich resources that you have given to us. And Lord, we also pray for those that don't have these resources. There are people in this world, Lord, who don't have the Word of God in their native tongue, and we just pray that you would work to raise up Bible translators and to raise up the funds where needed to, to get the Word of God into their native tongue, that they might rightly understand the Word of God. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us this time tonight. In the name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.